Father, we, we come into your presence because we recognize that the Bible that we open, it is your inspired word. Oh, Father, how we love you, how we praise you. You are good and you are holy. And Father, we look forward to the day of your return and the restoration of all things. Now teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles. If you don't have them open yet, we are looking at John 8. And I, along with you who are saying, oh, I, I love the study of John. I do. doesn't matter how many times we've studied it. It's always fresh, isn't it? And it's always applicable. As we look at John 8, we are going to see two main divisions. We're going to see how Jesus judges with righteous judgment the adulterous woman who is brought before him. But if you'll think about it, he is also going to be judging the whole rest of the chapter, the Jews who come before him. And he is going to have truly, 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 three things in particular, as well as him declaring who he is to the Jews and to the others. In addition to Jesus judging with righteous judgment, he is going to point out the great divide. Would you say that with me? The great divide between him and Satan. And we will see this in the latter part of John 8, where he declares, you are of your father, the devil. He is a liar. He is a murderer. And he points out who Satan is, well, at the same time, he is pointing out he is the truth, and he, Jesus, speaks the truth, and he is life. So we're going to see this huge contrast. The first thing that we're going to see, if you'll read with me, in verse 1 of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. This follows what all he has experienced and done at the feast in chapter 7 and the division and everything. Where does Jesus continue to model to you and me that he does? Where does he go? He is always going back to the Mount of Olives. He is going up to the mountain to pray. And then he is coming back into the presence of people to minister, to teach. And so we see how vitally important this is that at the beginning of our day, we must have had that time with the Father where we go up into his presence, into the heavenlies through prayer to converse with him, to hear from him to be restored by him before we go back out also and we are with our people and we attempt to minister. So Jesus went up to the mountain of Olives and then he came down and he began to teach them. Before we get into this, and I'll, I'll go back, I want us to go ahead and look at the adulterous woman that he is going to deal with because this absolutely captures our attention. Verse 3, let's read this passage. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Does your version have that word caught in adultery? I mean, it means they were just there. 
peeping Toms, just watching, I mean, literally, if they are seeing her caught in adultery. Can you imagine if you were with a man and there were two other people behind the curtains or behind the door watching you? What a violation. What a violation of privacy. It repeats that she was caught in adultery two times in this passage. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher. And of course, they called him teacher as if, oh, you're the one who's going to teach us something. But we know that they didn't even believe him. They, this was a trap. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. And then they say, in the very act. Well, this is just gross. This is horrible. What a terrible setup. I played the role of the adulterous woman in our play this past Easter. And two men dragged me from the back up here and threw me on the ground. And the first time they did that in a rehearsal, people said, oh, you played that role so good. And I was like, well, you know, not really. I was, I was thrown to the ground and I was just, I was like, well, what do you do if you've been caught in adultery and you're getting ready to get stoned? You get as close to the ground as you can and you cover your head and you're shaking. You're shaking. You're just wanting to get as small into that dirt and that ground as you possibly can because you know that any moment you're getting ready to get plummeted with stones. It's a horrifying experience. Now, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might find grounds for accusing him. Accusing him, why? Well, if he says stoner, then where is the merciful teacher that he has been being? But if he doesn't say stone her, then he's saying, oh, adultery, it's no sin, it's okay. They were testing him. And, of course, they could care less about the woman. But Jesus stooped down. And if I was that shaking, shivering woman, and I felt the presence of somebody beside me, not hurting me, almost as a covering in the dirt, and then you know what he did. He began writing, and with his finger wrote on the ground. Many people have speculated what he wrote on the ground. The Ten Commandments, perhaps? Or might he have written some scriptures such as this in Leviticus 20.10, that if a couple was found caught in adultery, it would be the man and the woman that would be brought to them. Would it be Deuteronomy 16.18, that he would have written in the sand. That if there was a case such as this, it would be brought before the elders at the gate of the city, an elder, a judge who had been appointed by the people, and he was not an appointed judge. So we hear this word judge a lot, but he was not an appointed judge by the people to sit at the city gates. Would he have brought that scripture and written it? Would he have written in there or made some indication that the Jews were not even able to punish someone by death 
because they were under the Romans, and the Romans were the only ones who were allowed to render a judgment of executing someone. And, and this is brought out in John 18.31, where they wanted, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, but they weren't allowed to. They had to take Jesus before the Roman government. Did Jesus write Deuteronomy 17.6 that said there had to be two eyewitnesses and without sin? Did Jesus write also that there must not be malice, Deuteronomy 19.16? or an intent for malice when somebody was brought before the court. There's no telling how many things he wrote, what he wrote, but he stooped down. And I love where it says that he wrote with his finger, he wrote on the ground. Did that remind you of Exodus 31, 18, where it was the finger of God who wrote the Ten Commandments? And after the people rose up and play and 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 when uh, Moses, because Moses had been gone so long, and Moses threw down those tablets and then had to return back up to God again <clears throat> a second time. It was the finger of God who wrote the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets. And so Jesus twice, as in the Old Testament, twice, he writes a law, and then he rises and he says to them, when they persisted in asking him, and he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then a second time, just as with Moses, the tablet of stones had to be written two times. He again wrote in the sand, the finger of God. Don't miss that in this passage. With his finger, he wrote when he stooped down and he wrote the second time and they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, no doubt because the older ones had committed more sin, no doubt because the older ones knew better. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, they keep mentioning the center of the court, they wanted this to be a public humiliation, a public embarrassment to this woman, a public testing of Jesus. These Jews had nothing, friends, but malice in their hearts. Malice in their hearts for the Lord. They had no concern for Jesus. They had no concern for this woman. As a matter of fact, it's not unlikely that they had even set her up to be with this man. How long had they set that up? What did he do to woo her to his bed? It was an extremely, extremely cruel thing. And they didn't mind the idea of killing the woman to prove a point with Jesus. These are the religious leaders of that day. And we would say, oh, we are so thankful we don't have that kind of religious leaders in our day. And yet, and yet, the sexual abuse that has permeated every denomination in our country, and the hush don't tell after a woman has been raped or molested and she is told by a preacher or a child is told by a priest, Shh, don't say anything, it is no different. The not caring, the violation of a person, and this is not of God, even though a person may wear the priestly robes 
or don that position. Jesus said to the woman, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, a couple of things here that are important. He is not saying that her adultery was not a sin. He calls it a sin. He says, sin no more. By him saying, neither do I condemn you, he is not saying that what she did was okay, that it was not wrong. The condemnation, the, the Greek word here, I do not condemn you with a sentence of death. If you look in, and let me see, I believe it is in um, John, no, I'm sorry, it's in Mark 14, 64, where it was speaking of Jesus being condemned. He was condemned and a sentence was given. Like, uh, condemned and sentenced to crucifixion. Neither do I condemn you with a sentence on your behavior, is what Jesus said. There was not a sentence with a view of execution on her. Instead, she was treated mercifully. She was treated with grace. And friends, it's very important for us to recognize that God's grace extended toward us is not permission to continue in our sin. God's grace extended toward us is an opportunity for us to say, thank you, Lord, and then to change our behavior through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? As we look at Jesus being the light of the world, let's go ahead and continue here as I was going there, showing that we're going to see in verses 12 through 30 that Jesus is the light of the world, and in verses 31 through 59, Jesus is the truth who sets you free of sin's enslavement and death, and Jesus gives eternal life. Contrast that with the other side of the description of the devil in 12 through 30. The devil is full of darkness, 31 through 59. The devil is the father of lies. He is a liar. He enslaves people in sin, and he is a murderer. If you notice in your Bible, in John 8, it is packed with lies. The Jews are going to say to Jesus, you have a demon. The Jews are going to say to Jesus, we've never been enslaved. And they were enslaved by the Egyptians. They're currently under the Romans. They've been enslaved by the Babylonians. They've been enslaved by the Assyrians. And they just are looking at Jesus in the eye and saying, we've never been enslaved by anyone. They're liars. They just lie as if they don't even know they're lying. They just, they just lie. It just comes out of your, their mouths. Have you seen any people or known any people or any public figures? And it just seems to be that just lies come out and, and they just seem to keep, kind of keep saying them. Well, that, that is what is going on here. And they're murderers. They want to kill the a woman who was caught set up. They want to kill the woman in adultery. They want to kill Jesus, and they keep trying to want to kill Jesus, and they will eventually kill Jesus. There is a contrast. There is a great divide between the Lord who is the truth and light and life and Satan who is a liar 
a murderer, the father of lies, and we are seeing this being played out today. We are seeing this being played out today. Have you seen the posters of people saying, gas the Jews? Have you seen the violence against them? Friends, I am not a history buff, so I can't give you every detail of the history of all of the nations and all of this, but I will tell you this. In Acts 17.26, Paul writes and he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. May I read to you some others as we look at how there is a war going on on our earth, but it's the war that is being occurring in heaven because we know it is that. I want to go back here very quickly to our passage on there being war and on Jesus setting the boundaries. In Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed men of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. In Genesis 6, 11, it tells us, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. This is what happened. And the Lord looked on it, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then this is when God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. You know, in Joshua chapter 1, we see this war, we see this battle between those who are violent people and God, who is holy and righteous, and how God does give land. God is the one who sets boundaries. God is the one who places his people, the Jews, where he wants them to be. In Joshua 1, 2, Moses, my servant is dead, he says to Joshua. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Cross over the Jordan River, he says. Cross over in battle array, all you valiant warriors, until the Lord gives your brothers rest, which he gives you. And he get, the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. There is violence in our land, whether it's exemplified by them catching the woman in adultery, or it's the violence that's going on today through child abuse, through the horrible violence. I don't know if you saw the two men that videotaped running down a retired officer and murdering him and then laughing about it in court to the main recent mass shooting that went on. We see the violence in the world, and then we see Jesus saying, if a person follows him, in verse 12, that they will walk in the light. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, 
but will have the light of light. In verse 16, when Jesus says, even if I do judge, he did not come to judge the world at this time, but he cannot help but be observant in the sense of righteous judging. He cannot help but assess, he cannot help but proclaim what he sees, which is what he's doing here. And so he says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. He goes ahead and he says in verse 21, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm coming, you cannot come. Go to verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times he repeats, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. He has just said, I've come from above. And I'm telling you the truth. You're going to die in your sins. Jesus is doing everything he can. And he's saying, if you will follow me, the light, you'll walk in the light. If there was a spotlight shining on me right here and the spotlight was moving and I followed the spotlight, I would be walking in the light, even though everything else was dark around me. And Jesus is saying, if you will follow his word, if you will follow his teachings, if you will follow him, even though the world around you is dark, you can be in the light. In 21 through 24, Jesus explains he is from above heaven and that people will die in their sins unless they believe in him, God's son. In verses 25 through 30, Jesus says he does nothing on his own initiative, but rather he does what pleases the Father. In 31 through 32, Jesus explains if people continue in his word, they are truly, and that means they are in reality, his disciples, and the truth will make them free. Friends, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but verse 30 says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly, you're in reality, disciples of mine, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And just a short bit later, he is saying, you are of your father, the devil. I thought it just said that they had believed in him. Huh, how do you reconcile that? It just said many had believed in him. And now he's looking at them and he's saying, you're of your father, the devil. What is the deal? What's going on? It's that word truly. Then you're truly my disciples. Friends, we have to remember that even the demons believe in Jesus. Remember James 2, 19. For even the demons believe and tremble. In Luke 8, 28, they fell before Jesus and said, Son of the Most High God, talking to Jesus. It is not intellectual assent. It's not even head agreement knowledge, acknowledgement. It is truly, it is in reality. If you are a believer in reality, you won't start with a great little push and then fall back. Remember the seed, parable of the seeds and the sower and how some was scorched and how some the devil came and snatched away. 
But that which grew proved that the seed had been sown into that heart. There's an example that I think is a good one of Charles Bowden, who was the famous tightrope walker who walked across Niagara Falls on this tightrope. And the crowd cheered. There were like 25,000 people, and they cheered as he walked this unbelievable feat to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. When he got to the other side, he said, how many of you think I could carry a man on my back and walk back across safely? And the crowd cheered. And so one of the men who was cheering the loudest, he said, okay, come on, get on my back. And the man was like, no. I mean, it's easy to cheer on, but he, that man said he believed that Bowden could do it, but he didn't believe where he was going to invest his own life in action. Bowden did do it with another person, but that man who said he believed, he didn't believe that it was an action-based This is very important. In verses 33 through 35, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Have you ever tried to give up a sin? How did that work for you? (laughs) Sometimes we are convicted of a sin or a habit in our lives, but we're a slave of it, right? We can be a slave of sin, just like Jesus says. Whoever sins is a slave of that sin. And he goes on and he says that if the Son, if he makes you free, you will be free indeed. Friends, if you're enslaved, if you're in prison, a fellow inmate, a fellow slave back in that day could not free another slave. Only somebody who was free could go to a slave and free the slave. Only Jesus has no sin. He is the only one who can come and free you and me of sin. We must profess and call on his name. In verses 37 through 47, Jesus contrasts his heavenly father and his deeds with the unbelieving Jews and their father, the devil, and his deeds of murder, lies, and as Jesus said when they were saying, you have a demon, you Samaritan, we're not born of fornication. In other words, like you, we know where you came from. He contrasts this, them, even though they were nicely dressed, even though they were in these positions of religious authority, Jesus called them out for what they were. And so we see this principle that the battle continues from Genesis till now between Jesus, who is the light and life and freedom, and Satan, who is a murderer, darkness, and enslaves. The battle rages in heaven, and it is played out on earth. And God's people, you and me, are to be engaged in the battle against evil. We must be engaged. We must stand firm, as Paul writes in Ephesians. We must have on the armor of God. If you go back and you read from Genesis to Revelation, it is a book of war. It is a book of battles. It is a book of evil versus holiness, 
God versus Satan. As I read to you in Genesis 6, 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Would you read in the Hebrew what that word violence is? Hamas. And the earth was filled with Hamas. This is the Hebrew word for violence. And that word means wrong, cruelty, injustice. In Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is filled with violence, Hamas, because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them and the earth. Friends, there are a lot of good people who don't like what's going on in Israel right now. Nobody wants to see war. Nobody wants to see violence. Nobody wants to see people dying. Nobody, well, I guess Hamas does, uh, because, they, because they went in and they killed innocent civilians and, and children and elderly women and raped and and beheaded and did horrible things, violence to the Jews. Satan hates the Jews. He hates Jesus. And this battle will continue until Jesus returns in Revelation, and he is returning for the battle, for the battle. Not until heaven will we experience the holy, godly peace and restoration of the first Garden of Eden, when we have that garden again with the tree of life in the center, with a river of eternal life flowing through it in Revelation. We must be armed. We must be smart. We must understand what is going on. Why do I say this about Satan hates the Jews? The Jews are uniquely targeted. 2.4%, they are 2.4% of the United States population, but the accounts for the religious-based hate crimes is 60% done to, toward the Jews. It is a disproportionate violence against the Jews. So as we close, what is our hope? Because we've got the main shooter, we've got the battle raging in Israel and in Gaza, what is our hope? In 48 through 59, the chapter closes with Jesus replying to the blasphemous charge that he has a demon, saying, before Abraham was born, I am. That is our hope, I am. So let's close with some encouragement, shall we? Because we can think, oh my goodness, we do see the violence on our earth. Uh, we do see the violence from the beginning of time when God destroyed the earth with a flood because of the violence. What is our hope? Would you read these with me? I can have uptime every day by going up to meet with the Lord. These are the truths. I can be careful to not cast stones at others if I have sinned in my life. You can read these out loud with me. I can recognize that grace is not a license to sin, 
but rather a charge to sin no more. I can walk in Christ's light. I can believe on the Lord Jesus and not die in my sins. Isn't that wonderful? We're not going to be buried with our sins and then face judgment. I don't have to even, it says, taste death. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And in verse 52, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Friends, we're not even going to get a, a taste of it. We're not going to taste it. And six, I can continue in Christ's word, the truth, and be free. Our Bible is very applicable, would you say, to today and what's going on and how important it is that we recognize that we are in the Lord's army. It's important for us to go up to meet with the Lord every day in prayer so that when we come down armed in battle array with the full armor of God and our faith and our peace and our word and our shield and our sword, then we are able to speak the truth in love and we are able to stand firm for the truth. How is the Lord speaking to you? Would you write that down? Heavenly Father, we just love to sing and praise you, the Prince of Peace. And Father, we do recognize that you, Jesus, did not come the first time to judge the world, but rather to save the world. And yet you point out to us, Lord Jesus, the great divide between the devil who is of the darkness and a liar and a murder from the beginning, and you, Lord, who are life and light and truth. Father, help us be permeated with your Holy Spirit so that we are walking, talking, living, breathing soldiers in your kingdom on this earth while the battle is play, being played out. Help us stand firm, Father, and not even dare want to taste sin because we want to instead taste and see how good you are. Lord, we ask you to live fully your life through us, and so we fully submit our bodies and minds and hearts and spirits to you. In Jesus' name, amen.